Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi again, everyone. I'm Sean Callahan, And I'm Mark Shank. And I've just come back from Silicon Valley. I was over there last week and uh, had a lovely time. Weather was great. and went for a run around Stanford University, which was... Uh, quite exciting. You're heading over there again soon to run some workshops, I believe. Yes, yes. So I'm running two public workshops, uh, if anyone wants to come along. They're in early December. One's on storytelling for sales, and the other one is a new program that we're running, kind of like a bit of a prototype, if you like, called Story-Powered Culture Change. And it's actually uh, really building on the early work that we did on narrative inquiry. You know, how do you use the collection of stories as a way to... Uh, foster and nudge changes in organizations yeah and com- combining that with what we know about the importance of having a compelling change story being able to influence people to change their minds etc so that. combining all of that together into a whole new program yes that'd be fun to, to run so sean uh your turn to tell the story this week what do you got for us well i've got one i think you'll like mark it's um you know someone that we all know and love and that's uh the great designer british designer james dyson I oh, certainly know of him. I'm not sure I'm... I'm love I'm, is a bit... I, far, love I, I pushed it too far. <laughs> you did. You, you went uh, just a, a bit too far. I mean, I love some of his products. Right. Good. Well, set your mind back to 1979, right? So back then, James Dyson's a 32-year-old young fellow. He's just really getting his engineering career going. Um, and he's done a couple of interesting projects already, right? So right out of uni, he essentially helped design a product called the sea truck and the sea truck was a flat bottomed uh, sort of sea vehicle that you could actually load and unload without having to be at a jetty it was all made of fiberglass and he did that with uh, the sort of the great British designer Jeremy Fry and also at the same time he uh, well pretty much after that one of the first things that he invented himself was the ball barrow do you remember the ball barrow I've got a picture of it in my mind. Right. So imagine um, sort of a, an inflatable rubber ball um, that instead of the tyre is this round ball that's placed there with the idea that it's much easier to manoeuvre and goes over all sorts of different terrain a lot easier. Right? And having tried to manoeuvre heavy, well, fully loaded wheelbarrows, you want to turn it? It's generally like a three or four point turn. That's it, right. So it changes all that. And it wasn't a big hit for him. It was He realised that people, A, don't buy ball barrows very often or don't buy wheelbarrows very often. And people are not willing to spend a lot of money on a wheelbarrow, right? So, But he did, it did spark something for him, which ended up being really what we see today in some of the great inventions around vacuum cleaners and air blade hand dryers and all that sort of stuff. And it came from the fact that as he was getting his, he was painting, if you like, with spray paint, the the forks that held the, the ball on the ball barrow. And as he's painting, he got his guys painting, helping him do this painting, he realised that a lot of paint's going to waste. It's, it's just floating around the air. Yeah, overspray. Overspray, because it's, you know, these forks, are not. there's not a lot of metal there, right? And he's thinking, hey, it's probably a bit of a safety hazard, you know, having this extra paint flying around the place. And maybe he could recycle some of that. So he asks around, and it turns out that, you know, the technology of the day was something called a, a, a cyclone extractor, right? They would put it above the area you're working, and it would just suck the air out. And through centrifugal forces, 
would actually pull the, the sort of whatever's in the air to the side and then it would be separated and, and, you know, the air would be cleaned, right? And he thought, oh, this is great. In fact, he remembered that just down the road there was a sawmill and he, he was sure that it had something similar. So he races down there and he sees this massive cyclone extractor above the sawmill to suck the sawdust away from the sawmill. So that night... He does a little bit of excursion. He decides to jump over the fence of the sawmill and takes a whole bunch of measurements and, you know, we'll try to work out how this thing works. He then starts to build his own cyclone. It's a massive uh, undertaking. I mean, the guy has already built, you know, these fiberglass boats. He's a very can-do fellow, you know, just throws himself into it. But he ends up building this cyclone and it's, a, you know, a 30-foot construction, right? So that's all going well, but as he's doing this, his him and his wife decide to buy a new vacuum cleaner, and because he's into, you know, uh, you know, gadgets and engineering, he wants to buy the very best one. So he buys this Hoover, which has got the strongest engine. It's like the the state of the art at the time, and he's doing some vacuuming with it, and he noticed that the suction has disappeared out of it, and of course, you know, the bag had filled up. So he pulls out the bag, he empties it, and then he realises he doesn't have a replacement bag. He says, oh, that's okay, I'll just put the bag back in. Still no suction. And he's going, what's going on here? So he pulls out the bag again, he looks at the bag, and you can see that the pores inside the bag are all full of dust. Right, so there's no flow through now. There's no flow through air. And he's going, gee, it's got to be a better way. And just as he's thinking that, he's going, maybe you could have a cyclone extractor, like I'm using for the paint job and also what the sawmill has, Maybe I could make a tiny one that would go in a vacuum cleaner. Instead of bags. Instead of bags. You wouldn't need bags at all, right? And so he he goes and starts to create his first prototype. He does it out of cardboard and scotch tape, builds it, attaches the uh, vacuum suction into his cy- little cyclone to see whether it would actually pull dust out of the air. And lo and behold, it's actually working, Right. So he's, he's all excited. He's got, okay, I've got something. This is, this is pretty awesome. So he goes back to his company. These are the same guys he's doing the ball barrow with, etc. He pitches the idea and they just sort of say, look, James, you know, quite frankly, if, if the guys like Hoover and Electrolux, you know, they would have probably come up with this idea already. I mean, they've obviously discounted it. So quite frankly, it's, it's not a goer. Right? And they can him. And he pushes hard enough, I think he actually gets booted out of the company. He's a shareholder of the company, he gets booted out. So he starts a new company, Dyson uh, Incorporated, and the first thing he does is that he, um, you know, obviously decides to build this thing. So he goes back to the guy he was did the, the sea truck with, um, the, 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 the engineer that he was working with, Jeremy Fry. He, you know, he's, he's an established guy, right? And he says, can you invest in this? And Jeremy Fry says, yeah, I'll do it. 49% of the company he gets, I think he provides 50,000 pounds, which back in the late early 80s, that was a significant chunk of, of change, right? And he starts building prototypes. Anyway, he ends up building 1,127 prototypes. 1,127 prototypes before he gets it right. It takes him four years. And this is in his back garden shed, right? So this guy is just changing one variable each time, building another prototype. Another variable, 
building another prototype. And it enabled him to get to the point where he could register a patent, right? And he's, he's got it, right? So the idea is that they're going to license it to the big uh, you know, vacuum clean makers. And he does, gets out there, you know, get the, you know, wear the shoe leather and off he goes. He gets a no from everyone. Because, of course, they've invested heavily in this idea of the bags and having a bagless vacuum cleaner. It turned out back then the industry for bags was something worth something like £100 million a year. Oh, right, and they're not going to throw that away. They're not going to throw that away, exactly. So they just saw him as a competitor, as someone who was going to cause him pain. Well, of course, he's down on his cash at this point. He's got nothing. Uh, But luckily, he licenses his uh, idea to a Japanese company. They start building it uh, and selling it in Japan. It's almost like an art piece. They're selling it for $2,500 a a vacuum cleaner. Uh, That is an expensive vacuum cleaner. Yeah, yeah. Especially back in the the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this is just like crazy prices for a vacuum cleaner. But this is saves him from bankruptcy, right? So he was just right on the verge of going bankrupt. Um, So that happens. You know, that goes for a while and he's thinking, well, quite frankly, I'd really like to build my own. I want to do it cheaper. I want to do it, you know, have control. So he goes to his, um, again, to investors, as you do. Guess what? No one wants to invest in him. He can't get any money from anyone. But eventually he goes to a bank and he just says to the bank manager, I want to borrow £600,000. And the bank manager, you know, over a period of, you know, a few days goes home one night, mentions it to his wife, sort of says, you know, what do you think of a vacuum cleaner that doesn't have uh, bags? And, of course, she loves the idea. That, in addition to the fact that Dyson had actually won a, um, a really tough lawsuit where he was more or less... Some of the other companies were starting to steal his patent, right? But he won a lawsuit against him. So, you know, he's got some sort of tenacious uh, characteristics that the bank manager loved. So they actually loan him. So... Dyson, by this stage, now owns all of the business. He's 100% owner. And to this day, he's 100% owner of uh, Dyson Incorporated, right? Wow. Isn't that amazing? So anyway, he he then, of course, builds it. He starts to sell them in catalogs. His breakthrough happens when he sells it to John Lewis, the big department store. Uh, Within a year of doing that, and this is 93, I think, 94, within a year of doing that, they're selling $100 million worth of vacuum cleaners every year. And it, and it goes up from there, right? So how and about overnight that? success. Overnight success. Only took about 15 years, 15 to, make years it, in the to make it happen, right? So I, I, when I came across that story, it's one of those ones where, you know, you sort of know the product, you know the name, but just to hear the intricacies of actually how it came about, I found fascinating. Yeah, uh, me too. I, was, I, I love that story. It's fantastic. Not at all what I expected to hear. Right. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? So I, I even got into, started to get into the detail. I was trying to work out what are these, you know, uh, sort of cyclone extractors and... Too much information? Yeah, I, I left it out of the story only because um, Dyson mentions in some of his interviews, he sort of says it's like a wine bottle. And I'm thinking, how, how is it like a wine bottle? Like there's a hole in the bottom of a wine bottle. How does it get out the other end? Well, of course, it's only vaguely like a wine bottle in the sense of its shape. But of course, you have holes all over the place for these uh, extractors to work. But it works on, imagine the air going up into the, you know, sort of the neck of the, the neck's facing down, right? 
air's going up, goes into that centrifugal forces, sucks the you know the dust to the side, etc. That gets separated out, and then the air just keeps more or less going straight out the top. So yeah, it's a great little system. I need to go and buy one. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure they're still very expensive though. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I bought one. I bought a vacuum cleaner a few years ago and looked at the Dyson and and went, oh wow, does it is it really that much better? Right. You know, right. like at two two and a half times more expensive. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Maybe I should have. Maybe you should have. Yeah. Now, what do you think, uh, Mark? In terms of that story, uh, yeah, we'll start where we normally start. What did you like? What were the bits that stood out for you? Well, one of the things I liked about that story is that even though I know the ending, I know how it ends. Yes. Right? Dyson has got a fantastic vacuum cleaner used all over the world. Uh, It was still fascinating because I had no idea about the details. Right. And it kind of revealed the the nature of his character and uh, the, the complexity of the product and how it came into being. And the other thing I liked about it was, uh, at any one of those turning points, it could have it could have ended. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you go through that many prototypes, you know, over four years, yeah, and the bank manager doesn't go and talk to his wife, and his wife goes, "A bagless vacuum cleaner, bring it on," and then he lends him the six hundred thousand pounds. I mean, without that event, yes, the Dyson. You go into a store, there is no Dyson. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It just hinges on a range of different things Amazing. like that. Yeah, I think the other thing I really love too is that little insight on innovation in the sense of, you know, here he was working on one problem, which is essentially, you know, the problem of extracting paint from his paint shop. Um, and then at the same time has the problem with his vacuum cleaner. And it's only when those two things come together that he's just asked the question, I wonder if I can... You know, you know. I wonder if I can actually create a mini version of this, a little mini me. Right. So yeah. So that that diversity, exposing him to a whole bunch of different problems and industries and activities, it becomes a necessity, doesn't it, for good innovation? Yeah. And so that's one of the great applications I see of this story. Yeah. Actually, I do see a lot of companies, more than you would imagine, who are quite insular. They don't actually look outside that often. Whereas I combine that compare that to like just recently doing that work with uh, Mars up in Shanghai, those guys are actively going out and seeing different industries, different scenarios. They're really trying to spark ideas and, you know, to to create new opportunities. And uh, Cargill as well, our work with Cargill across the globe, they've got a concept called bringing the outside in. Right. where they're actively going. And they've had some fantastic insights from other industries that they've been able to bring into their own business. Fantastic. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's a little idea, isn't it, that just rolls on and has a big impact for so many organisations. Yeah. Now, another thing I liked about it is the point that, uh, that, that you talk about all the time, which is relatability. Right, yes. And so we all know what vacuuming the floor is like. Right. Most people who don't have a Dyson know what it's like when the bag, when the vacuum stops sucking and you pull out the bag and the bag is a disgusting mess. Yes. And all you want to do is put it in the bin, but then you have that moment where there is no replacement bag 
Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and that's I, it. I have actually gone through the same process that Dyson went through, where I've disassembled the bag. I've tried to turn it inside out by, you know, I had to take the plastic end off and, yeah, and right. then, you know, beat it senseless till all the dust comes out of the pores and then reassemble it using duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just got a Dyson. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, relatability is a really important characteristic of good stories. I mean, we're not that interested in stories that we can't work out what the hell's going on, right? Or who, who the heck is that person? Who yeah, cares? that's right. So that's ele- that's an important element. Right, and so the fact that it's James Dyson yes. is also uh, increases the relatability. Yeah, so I think they're the, some of the good ones. I think one of the things that I... I I sort of noticed myself doing, I didn't really plan it per se, but I ended up sort of throwing in dialogue, you know, between him and the bank manager and the bank manager and his wife. Uh, you could easily do it as a narration in a descriptive way, you know, in the sense of saying, uh, and then the bank manager talked to his wife and this happened and that happened. But by doing sort of saying, he, say hey honey you know i'm you know i've got this guy i can't even remember exactly how i did it but i remember there was some little bits of dialogue and dialogue really brings the listener really close to your story right it's a great technique as much as you can use it and dialogue can. really helps with uh, imagery you can kind of the you can picture the bank manager talking to his wife when yes, there's dialogue when involved. there's dialogue a lot, lot easier and I can, I can imagine the look on her face when she goes yeah yeah that's right bring it on <laughs> a bagless vacuum cleaner yeah. thank you so, okay whereabouts using it hey is that well, the, I just, the next the, the, the other thing I liked about that story is it revealed things that I didn't know right there was uh, details of the Dyson story that was really revealing that kept me really interested even though I knew what the ending was and one of the things it revealed, of course, is his character. What sort of guy he was. Yeah, yeah. you learn pretty quickly, don't you, that he's not a sort of fellow who's going to give up. Yeah. He keeps pushing. He sort of, um, uh, you know, it'd be so easy to sort of say, okay, I'm just going to go get myself an engineering job somewhere. Yeah. Um, the character that he displays when he jumps over the fence at night and <laughs> yeah, takes the right. measurements. Yeah, right? yeah. Those yeah. little details really demonstrate his character. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I was actually really making sure I did a couple of little things in that story. Like, for example, I wanted to make sure that people knew that, you know, he'd had, he'd had a little bit of a career before he got into this, that, you know, he'd worked with Jeremy Fry and he'd done the, you know, the sea truck. And 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 so there was some background. And, and, and Jeremy Fry becomes an important part of this story. So by mentioning right at the beginning, you're introduced to him, and then I can bring him back in the story. When he stumps up the cash. Where he stumps up the cash. And you then understand why Jeremy Fry might stump up the cash, because he's seen Dyson in action. He knows the tenacious character that he has, and he knows he's going to be a winner, right? Or he has a good sense of it, maybe. And that backstory also reveals that uh, Dyson is a, a serial innovator. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And, you know, I love, I love that sort of vision of him, uh, you know, just working on his ball barrow and, and that not going anywhere. I mean, this is the great thing, is trying these little things out. Um, the more ideas, the more likely you're going to hit one that's going to, you know, do well. One of the things that we see a lot of this uh, these days is differentiating between innovation and entrepreneurship. 
right. where the innovator creates something but is often un- incapable of bringing it to market. And that's where yes. the entrepreneur is really important in the, uh, in the process. And we see that concatenated in Dyson where he did both. Yes. And he still, I understand he still is 100% oh, yeah. owner. Yeah, yeah, 100% owner of the business. And, wow. uh, you know, he must be getting on these days, but he's um, seems to be really very involved in everything. Um, especially on the R and D front, I think is where yeah, well, he puts he keeps his effort. Coming up with new things. Yeah, exactly. I, I find it interesting going to bathrooms across the world and seeing his uh, blade hand uh, air blower dryers. Yes, that's right. The next thing and, and air blade, air blade, and then he's got the um, uh, you know just the fans which don't have any blades on them at all. Right? It's it, you know, all these things all come from this idea that he had with the with the cyclone. Yeah. All right. So our little our little heater cooler. In the office, which is a Dyson, has the same basic technology. Yes, yeah, and, and of course, it has no fan or it has no blade. Yeah, and it, but it does an amazing job of of uh, air circulating air, both hot and cold. Okay, so we should talk about how you might use this story in a business context. Yes, yeah. For me, I mean, one of the things that would uh, make a lot of sense is just uh, encouraging people to iterate. You know, to have an idea, but you know, go through your prototypes, try things out, make those small changes, um, to sort of see where you've, you know, you can potentially improve something to a point where you're happy with it and it can actually um, be used. I, I think that's one of the big lessons in that. I suppose related to that is is the importance of mistakes, right? I mean, well, and I, failures and failures. Yeah, in failures, I suppose that's it. The I heard him interviewed actually when he said, you know, maybe kids shouldn't be measured on the number of successes they've had, but rather the, the number of failures they've had, uh, because the kids who have got no failures are, he reckons, unlikely to be creative. And I think this is a really interesting point that he's making. It reminds me of an experience I had when I was still in the Air Force back back in the late 1990s, when I was I doing I was having my annual performance review, and uh, I you know maybe ten projects I'd done during the course of the year, and and nine of them were off the scale successes. One was a failure. In the performance review, the only thing that the uh, that the senior officer wanted to talk about was the failure. Right, and it's kind of indicative of why that thought that James Dyson gave, which is kids should be measured on their, not just on their successes, but on their failures, because we punish failure. And of course, that's a barrier to innovation. Yes. Yeah, well, I think generally in in a good culture of an entrepreneurial culture, they not only, uh, they celebrate failure, right? You know, it's like fail fast. Fail fast. This is is sort of like the terminology. So it's getting that idea. I think that's how you'd use this, one of the ways in in using it. Yeah, it's a great example of that. Yeah. He found a thousand and one thousand one hundred and twenty-seven twenty-seven ways that it doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. He found a way that it does. Indeed. Um, Other ways of using the story? What do you reckon? Well, persistence. The importance of persistence. These sort of successes, we look at it and we go, oh, yes, the Dyson, yes, fantastic. But we don't, we're not aware of the fact that he persisted. Yes. He kept going even in the face of adversity. And this is an important characteristic of getting ideas from an idea on paper into something that's, that's real yeah. and making a difference. So I would use it where I wanted people to keep going, to keep trying. 
Yeah, too. It's, it sort of also gives you a bit of a sense of just how long it takes to have a hit, right? You know, people are always expecting people to, you know, just be able to knock it out of the park in the first first twelve months or something like that. But you know, to build a business of that sort of scale and that level of uh, innovation and 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 what he's put into that, you know, it's taking it takes years to do that, um, and I think that's sometimes underestimated in in what people are expecting. So it's a good uh, level setter, I think. If you are, you know, kicking out a new part of your business, you can tell the Dyson story, which is an inspirational story, right? So you sort of go, oh my God, that's fantastic. But at the same time, it sort of sets the, you know, the benchmark, like how long is this going to take to be able to, you know, sort of really command a market that he's commanding now. Yeah, right. Exactly. And in terms of application, just circling back to what we said earlier, if I had a team that were trying to be innovative, I'd be encouraging them to go out and experience as many different things as they possibly could, get that diversity, different different ways of thinking, different problem sets, different ways of thinking about solutions, because it's in the mix of all of that that Dyson came up with his idea. Yes. It was the it was the, the the confluence of all of those things. And I think too, we, I mean, this is a very engineering uh, mindset, but. For him, it was always about what's the next problem I have to solve, right? So he's, he's, it's like I'm solving this problem, then I'm solving that problem, and now I've got another problem. And But because he's keeping himself informed through a range of different things, the way in which he solves them, the possibilities, the next steps, uh, you know, creates this lovely fan of, po- you know, sort of possibilities, I think. Yeah. And that's just reminding me of another application, which is where I want people to work together because... Often we see leaders, managers who have a list of things that are on their their performance chart for the year and they toil away going, oh, it's my responsibility to get this done. And they work on their own thinking, oh, this is my responsibility. Whereas often the solutions or at least the opportunities might lie in collaboration. Yeah. So just getting people to think about there's a different way. It's not about you just toiling away on your own, beavering away. The lone genius. Yeah, that's right. I like too the fact that he, he his first employees were three engineers and one sales guy. I reckon that's not a bad ratio. Yeah. Well, that's important. <laughs> when you're building something, right? You know, so I thought that was good. Um, okay. So we've talked a little bit about uh, what we liked about it, also where we would use it probably time for us to give it a bit of a rating give it a rating yeah yeah so in terms of ratings what do you think what would we give this one well i know what i'm going to give it okay i'm giving this one an eight an eight loved it yeah that's a that's a, that's a good strong that's a strong a strong, a rating. strong <laughs> score i like that yeah you know i'll give it an eight as well i think this is a story i and i already have told it numerous times so it's always a good indicator for me as to, and and people lean in. They really love to hear about, you know, what happened, you know, just all those little intricacies. So it does say something about. I reckon this is one of those stories that um, um, there's some characteristics in here you could probably pull out to sort of think, okay, what are other good stories that people might like? But I give it an eight as well. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, anything we need to finish up on, Mark? Well, only just to remind people that the whole idea of the podcast is to 
give you the opportunity to fill your business story repertoires and use these examples. And we had a fantastic email from Singapore this morning about the Damn It Summit. Uh, oh, yes, the, that's our, right. Our, our last podcast and how it's already being used in a, uh, in a, in a big transformation to encourage people to be, to be innovative. That's fantastic, isn't it? So, yeah. Guys, let us know how you use the stories. We, we'd love to hear that. And uh, if you've got a great story you think we should tell, um, let us know. Send us, you know. send us a note. That would be terrific. Well, I think we might just wrap things up. So thanks for listening in to uh, Anecdotally Speaking. Uh, tune in next week. We'll have another episode for you to listen on how to put your stories to work. Mm-hmm.